Well, good morning again. Um, before we get going here, I mean, you can you can open to Exodus uh, 19 if you'd like. But just as you're doing that, I, I just want to just spend a few minutes praying for Nicole and for family. Um, yeah, I, I told her this morning. You know, I I don't I don't even know how to imagine um, within f- about five days um, such devastating news and. And so what I did tell her is that she has a group of people here that love her and care for her, and, uh, and that we're going to pray for her this morning, but, but I trust that we're going to pray for her and the family moving forward. Um, I, I don't know how long she's going to be out there just yet, um, but if you want to reach out, um, email her or, or give her a call, I'm sure she would appreciate that in the coming days. Um, we just, I just want her to know that she's not alone in the midst of this. So let's just bow and, and we'll just commit her to, uh, to God's will in this. God, we, man, we don't even, very few of us can understand what, what Nicole was feeling this morning. And so God, we pray for her. We pray for her comfort. that you would surround her with family, with friends, with people that support her and lift her up and, and love her, that she would know that she is not walking this alone, but that she has people that she can rely on. God, would we, as, as her home church, would we continually be lifting her up? Not just thinking of her occasionally, but making it a, a part of our day, every day moving forward to bring her to the throne of grace. That as she grieves and as she goes through the process of of understanding what has happened and and emotionally dealing with with those things, that that she would just feel our, our, our prayers and your comfort for her. Reminded of what Paul says where a peace that passes all understanding. We pray that that would be hers, that even in the midst of this, that miraculously you would be at work. God, we, we don't understand why things happen the way they do. And when things are going well, that's very easy to swallow, but when things go difficult, can be very challenging. So I just pray for Nicole's faith in the midst of all of this. That while she might not get the answers that she's looking for, that she would know that she is loved and cared for even in the midst of trial and this pain. So be with the family in these coming days and weeks ahead. And help us to daily lift them up to you. Amen. If you want to go ahead and open, if you haven't yet, to, to Exodus 19. We've been, uh, for 2023 here, we've been going through the book of Exodus. And uh, I'm not really going to give too much of a synopsis at this point. Um, because we're going to try and do something. Um, I didn't know how to do chapter 19 without doing chapter 20 at the same time. And I don't know how to do chapter 19 and 20 at the same time without having you sit here till 2 o'clock. 
So we're going to do our best to be clear and concise. Um, but chapter 20 is, is without looking. Okay, good. Without looking, what's chapter 20 of Exodus? Ten Commandments. This is kind of like some central stuff, but I think that so often we contextualize this to a group of people uh, that lived thousands of years ago and, and think this has nothing to do with us, and we wrestle with this old covenant, new covenant, what does that all mean? And this morning, I, I want to really try and help us understand the purpose for which it was given, and I'm going to argue that that purpose has not changed today. But we can't do that without spending a lot of time here. So I'm going to give you the real quick synopsis. Suffice it to say this, is the Hebrew people went into Egypt, and through a series of events, they ended up being slaves for 430 years in Egypt, and they cried out to the Lord for rescue. And through um, a crazy series of events, in miraculous ways, God uses Moses to bring the people out of slavery, and then as they head towards Mount Sinai, which is where we're going to be here today, is as all these um, obstacles and challenges come in the way, we learn that God is, is testing the people saying, look, do you trust me or do you trust you? Do you trust me to give you what you need? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it daily. And he has food fall from the sky every day and exactly the, enough for each family. He provides water where there is none. He continually shows that I can be trusted. Will you trust me? And that's where we end up here. And so I'm not going to read very much of 19, but I'm going to summarize it a, a little bit. So this is kind of the halfway point. I promise we'll move faster the second half. Um, but as the people arrive at Mount Sinai, we're going to see that first God gives a covenant with them here in 19. He makes a covenant with them, rather, I should say. Then he gives them the Ten Commandments. And then he gives them uh, some other uh, laws about, or, or other laws that we're going to talk about next week, uh, instructions about entering the promised land, instructions about the tabernacle, and constructing it. And so really, for the rest of Exodus, these people are camped here for just about 11 months. So for the next 20 chapters, the people are in one location, learning and hearing from God. Here's who God is. Here's what his commands are. And my hope is that especially this morning with the Ten Commandments, but, but even as we look at some of the more other obscure commands, other, some of these laws that we might have a hard time with, that we'll start to see that all of them are pointing towards the people understanding that the very character of who God is. That he is trustworthy, that they can follow after him even when the road ahead looks very difficult. So Moses arrives at Mount Sinai. And remember back to chapter 3, verse 12, um, when Moses appears at the burning bush. And he's having a conversation with God. And God tells him, you are going to bring all the Hebrew people back here to worship on this mountain. Well, here, here they are. This is the fulfillment of that promise. It's just another reminder that what God promises, God does. And so I'm going to read verses 4 to 6 of 19. And you can look with me as well here. And this is God speaking to Israel, and he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured, my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. 
And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God says this to Moses. Moses is supposed to go and tell the people this. God reminds them, remember what I've done. And we've talked about this at length, but how quickly we forget God's goodness. And when hardship and calamity come our way, how quickly we forget how faithful he has been in the past. And and so we've talked about ways in which in the coming years we're going to follow a sense of a calendar and remind ourselves of the things that God has done, both maybe in a big picture way, but also more in a small picture way within our church family, within individual families within our church. Because how has God proven himself to be faithful? We need to be reminded of that. But he gives them this covenant uh, to remind them that he has far greater plans and purposes than simply just to rescue them out of slavery, though that is certainly a big part of it. And Douglas Stewart wrote this. He said, uh, the Israelites, they were not to be a people unto themselves, enjoying their special relationship with God and paying no attention to the rest of the world. Rather, they were to represent him to the rest of the world and attempt to bring the rest of the world to him. That was the calling. That was the covenant. And we saw that all through Exodus so far, that even some of the Egyptians, when they saw God's power, went, he, he alone is God, and I want to serve this God. And they were welcomed in. And, and we see that kind of going through all through the Old Testament, is that God's plans and purposes are not for one nation, not for one nation to come to him, but through that one nation that all nations would come to him. He calls them. If you obey me, you will be my royal priests. Well, Peter in the New Testament picks up on this language. And in chapter 2, he writes this. And let me clarify this. He writes this not to the Jewish nation. He writes this to the church. To all those who have come into faith in Jesus. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God's plan in Exodus for the people is the same plan that he has now for you and I, the church. Is that we are to take the message of the gospel to all nations that they might hear and understand who God is. And and that hopefully through what they read in scripture, through what God reveals to them, and, and maybe by some miraculous way, the influence that we might be able to get to be a part of that they see that God is good. And that he has called all people to come to him because he alone is worthy of worship and praise. I really hope that as we study through Exodus, one of the things that we learn is that there's not this Old Testament and this New Testament and they're very different. Or that there's a God of the Old Testament and then there's a God of the New Testament and they seem very different. I hope that what you see is continual pointing ahead to what what the church is meant to be and how we are called. So in the New Testament, they give us this vernacular. They say, you are Christ's ambassador. So you are to go out into the world and you are to live for Christ and represent him in a way that people see and go, I need that. I, I need that. I need that hope and that peace and that comfort. Moses goes to the people and he says, this is what God's calling you into. He's calling you into this covenant relationship with himself. And in verse 8, the people cry out in unison, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
they have seen God's faithfulness. They've watched his miracles. And while they have certainly made their fair share of mistakes in not trusting God in various moments, in this moment they see clearly and they go, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And so Moses goes up the mountain to meet with the Lord. And this is where it can get a little bit confusing in the chronology of it. And so I just want to explain this a little bit. As Moses goes up and down the mountain several times. And it seems to be, if you track it, that uh, he goes up and down the mountain eight times in total. And so sometimes we really have to read closely to see that uh, because it looks almost as if it's one event. But when you look later on in Deuteronomy as well, which is kind of a, there's some further explanation and some further details that, that aren't in Exodus. They're, they focus on some different things. We start to see this. And so Moses goes up and has uh, this conversation kind of with God. And, and God says, you know what? Tell the people to consecrate themselves, make themselves holy. Tell them to set limits around the mountain. And, and it seems kind of very strange, some of these, these rules that are given. In fact, there's this really obscure, like if, if a person goes outside of that boundary or an animal even goes outside of that boundary, then you're simply to shoot him with an arrow and leave his body there. And you're kind of like, okay, that's weird and uncomfortable. The point is not that God is vengeful or angry. The point is that God's saying, I'm going to reveal myself to you, but because he is God, he gets to determine those terms. And he says, are you going to follow after me in the way that I have called you to do? Or are you going to do as Adam and Eve did, try and redefine everything? Are you going to say, I'll follow you, God, as long as. Or I'll follow you if. See, that's not submitting ourselves under one who has created all things. That's us saying, I think my way is smarter. I think I have more wisdom than you do. Now, you know, we're celebrating Mother's Day today, and there's this one truth that we all know is that mom is smarter than we are. Isn't that true? But you don't think that, especially when you're a teenager, right? All mom wants to do then is make my life no fun and to ground me and discipline me. Well, in the book of Hebrews, it says it differently. It's like later on in our lives, we'll look back on the discipline of our parents, and we go, oh, that's why they did that. Oh, they did understand some things that I didn't. Well, the same is true with God, is if he is the creator of all things, and if scripture is true, and, and that's something that you have to, each of us have to wrestle with internally, but if you believe that to be true, then we read this and we go, okay, well then God alone gets to determine these things, and he's not threatening us, he's saying, are you going to be obedient to what I call you to do? So set limits, around the mountain. Recognize that I am completely holy and I'm going to make a way for you to become ceremonial clean. We'll talk about this in the coming weeks uh, as some of these laws come into place. But I'm going to make a way for you to come so that you can be in the presence of me, so that we can, that we can have relationship together. But because Adam and Eve sinned, there's a way that I'm going to ask you to do this and I'm going to ask you to do it on my terms and not yours. And so they set this up. And they get ready to go. And, and as Moses goes up again to speak with God in the, in the thick cloud, which represents God's presence, the, the cloud wraps the mountain. Moses goes up to speak with him. And the people hear God speaking. And, and you see the imagery is thunder and lightning. Essentially what the point of what they're witnessing is it's just very, very intense. And we're going to see that in their response uh, in Exodus 20, which we're going to read now. 
So after all these things have happened, then it says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, sorry, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heavens and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Here's their response. When the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about that response. Because I think it's actually a very, very saddening response of, of how they neglect to do the thing that God has asked. But we'll get there in a, few mo- or in a few weeks. Now these are very familiar commands, but I think they're very familiar commands that often have been taught in a very wrong and unbiblical way. Is often we read it and go, if you could keep the Ten Commandments, then you would get to go to heaven. Is that the context? Does it say that anywhere in that? What does God say in 19? Well, he promises, if you will obey me, you will be my treasured people among, or treasured possession among all peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, he's saying, if you represent me well, people will see me and they will recognize their need for me. That's the covenant he's calling them into. They're already sinful people. You and I are already sinful people. God's not giving us a list saying, if you, did, if you could do these ten things, then you could come to be with me in eternity. And that's the first misunderstanding that we need to get rid of in our minds. Now we know, and, and later in the New Testament, James, as an example, does use the Ten Commandments, showing us that, oh, oh look, you, already, you and I are already lawbreakers. We are all already guilty. And Paul will say things like, I didn't know what sin was except from the law. And so he actually thanks God for making clear what his laws were to them. But never is it, if you could obey these things, then you'll go to heaven. That's just not a correct view of scripture. 
So what are they for? That's the question. And so I want to take them one at a time here, and I'll try and go as quickly as I can, but I want to take them one at a time. Most of them are very straightforward and clear, but I want to give a little bit of more context to them, and then I want to answer the question of, so what is the purpose, ultimately, of the Ten Commandments? Notice in chapter 20, verse 1, it says that God spoke all these words, saying... God has spoken with Moses, right, at the burning bush. God has spoken with him several times, but the people have always had a mediator. Moses has brought God's word to them. Well, here God speaks to them. And he speaks to them before the Ten Commandments in the reminder, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's not not some kind of a threat. He's simply reminding them, you called to me and I responded to you. Remember that you couldn't rescue yourselves, but that I came and rescued you. Does that not sound exactly like what Jesus is going to say later in Scripture over and over? The truth is that I cannot pull myself up and and somehow earn my own salvation. Jesus bought salvation for me on the cross. He did what I could not do. That's what God's reminding them here. And so he's saying, so you shall have no other gods before me. Now again, in the culture, context, right, 430 years in slavery with Egypt in a polytheistic nation as you pray to this God and that God, the God of this and the God of that. And God's reminding them, all of those, they're not the creator of all things. I am. So have no other gods before me. You might have a little footnote that says, besides me. And and so there's often this, this kind of grammatical argument in the Hebrew about what does this mean? Was God supposed to be number one and the rest would, would be kind of two, three, four, five, like God's number one on the depth chart and then all the other gods are underneath? Well, in the context of what we've read in the last 20 chapters, it's very simple, is that God says all those other gods have no power. They're not real. And yet you've been raised in a culture to think that way. Undoubtedly, even though they were Hebrew people, they would have seen Uh, and possibly even participated in worship to all these varying gods that existed. And God's saying, there's no other gods. There's no other gods. I am the only God. And so because I'm the only God, don't do what other nations do. Don't carve up an image of some kind of a likeness and then then worship that because that is a created thing. You were called to worship the creator of all things. No one little thing can, can kind of sum up who God is. And, and again, I've argued many times that I think that's a very good and gracious gift of God that I'll never know everything about him. Because if I could know everything about him, then by very definition, he would cease to be the creator. So God says, don't, don't make any other image. But then verses 5 and 6 have this this. Further context given, and again, I think this is a very misunderstand, uh, misunderstood couple of verses here. It, God describes himself as a jealous God, and immediately we get kind of uncomfortable with that because when we think of jealousy, we think of negative human emotion, like a really ugly human emotion. Well, the context here is that simply that God is jealous when someone gives to another something that belongs to him. So maybe you could think of that in the context of your own marriage, is that you are jealous of your spouse because you, he or she has committed to you and not to others. And, and so that jealousy for them is, is not an ugly 
well, it can be, but it shouldn't be an ugly emotion. It should be one of, I have committed to you, you have committed to me, and no one else will, will have any part of me, and no one else will have any part of you. It's a, it's a covenant, an agreement to come together. So God's saying, worship belongs to me alone because I'm the creator and I alone am worthy of it. But then you have this, this iniquity on the father's third and fourth generation, and, and, and what does this really mean? And it can be like, so is God vengeful? Is, is what God's saying, okay, if your great-grandpa did something, you know, really awful that now you're going to pay for the sins of, of him? And so there's so much debate about that, but, but there doesn't need to be any debate about that. What God's simply saying is, and if you look at it real quickly here, the context, end of verse 5, is of those who hate me. So, if your father hated God and, and taught you to hate God, and so you chose to hate God, well, then you're going to have the same consequences that your father had because you were living in the same way. If you were opposed to God and you taught your child to be opposed to God and they're opposed to God, well, there's a sense that, that there is responsibility to the father, but there's also responsibility to you as the individual. But then notice what he says is, on the third and the fourth generation. But, and here's the contrast, but showing steadfast love to thousands. So, so literally in Hebrew, to the thousandth generation. So do you see the contrast? Third and fourth here in the negative sense, but the thousandth in the positive sense. Is what God's trying to say is he can't and he won't let sin go unpunished, but his mercy and his grace and for those who come to him, his love is so much greater so much more than whatever we might think of God as vengeful or wrathful. Now, there's a whole sermon that we could deal with in that, but there is the wrath of God. There is the need for sin to be punished. There is the need for consequences. But ultimately, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, what we see, and we've talked about this over the weeks uh, and leading up to this, is that God is so abundantly patient. And so abundantly gracious, even when they refuse to follow after him. And so he's reminding them there will be consequences for hate of me, for opposition to me, but there's so much more on the other side. Commandment number three says, do not take the name, uh, do not take God's name in vain. So what, what exactly does that mean? Well, let's first do it in the context that it's there, but then let's take the principle further. To take... Uh, primarily, the meaning is about someone taking a deceptive oath in God's name or invoking God's name to sanction an act in which a person was being dishonest. So in other words, you know very well that what you're about to do or say is wrong, but you so go, and you say, but I swear to God that this is true or that I will do this. Is God's name is meant to be completely holy. You're not meant to use it in some flippant, trivial way to have other people uh, believe what you say. And, and Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. And he deals with this and he says simply, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. We are to be people of integrity so that we don't need to make an oath is what Jesus says. And here God says, don't, don't, Swear by my name. Don't misuse my name to advance your agenda. Now in our culture, what does it mean to maybe misuse his name? My argument would be like this. 
How often do we say things like, oh, my God? You know, I'm not bothered when people who don't follow Jesus speak that way because they're not held to account in the same way, at least not yet. What I'm saying here is that I think when we are trivial with God's name, when we use it as a curse word or when we use it flippantly or without the respect that it's due, we're showing something internal in our heart going that God is just very casual. And so there's, there's certain traditions that, that I do every Sunday morning that have nothing to do with moral sense but have to do with preparing myself to come and encounter God. So Sunday morning, there's time of prayer and reflection. And I plead with God that, that the words that we would read and what I would say would only be consistent with the truth of Scripture. I ask him to speak and to keep my mouth shut if it needs to be. Even preparing myself to come, people always ask why I wear a shirt and tie when, when by the time I say amen and I'm done praying, it comes off. It's just, it's just one of those things that... that I'm preparing myself to go, God, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to worship you, and I'm going to be very intentional with every part of that. That does not mean I'm asking anyone else to do that. That does not mean I'm not expecting anyone else to do that. I'm simply trying to take God's name as, as I come and I declare God's truth from his word that I would be prepared and that I would represent his name well. And how we talk is, is a big part of that, but not the only part of that. Command number four is the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. Well, this is something that in our culture we're not very good in because our culture is very, very busy. Our culture is very, uh, how efficient can you be and how much money can you make? How hard can you work? And actually, we really value and we, we look at things and we say, man, that guy works 80 or 90 hours a week. Unreal. What we should say is, what about their family? What about those that they love and should be with? Are they choosing a career in front of something that is far more important, their family and their responsibilities to them? What God is going to teach, and, and he's saying here in this text, in fact, I modeled this for you because I, God's saying, I created the world in six days, but there's a seventh day. Did God just run out of things to create? No, he gave us a pattern to follow. And in Deuteronomy's text where Moses re, kind of re-explains the law to that next generation of people, he, he uses this as an example. He says, because you, you are not slaves in Egypt anymore. You're going to rest because your worth is not based on what you can accomplish or produce. Now, maybe you need to hear that this morning. Your value is not in how much money you have in the bank. It is not in the, how much possessions you have. Your value is in the fact that you were created by the creator and he loves you. And so he teaches us as people, man, get in a rhythm. Recognize that your value is not in what you can produce, but your value is in who you are. And so have a regular pattern. And, and don't just kind of rest from your work and sit under the palapa sipping your pina coladas, though, I mean, if you want to do that, that's okay too, as long as you're in Mexico. No, we should have times of vacation. We should have times of complete unplug and rest. But what he's talking about here is this, this normal principle of your, your everyday life. Is that as you go into routine that you slow down and you go, I don't need to work today because I don't need to accomplish today. But it's not just about resting. He's also saying, actually then focus on what is good and true and right. Focus on God. So this is 
this, in, the, in the Jewish culture, Saturday is the Sabbath. In the Christian culture, because Jesus rose again on the Sundays, we have moved that and we celebrate that on Sunday. But the point is not, okay, take three hours off, come to church, go home, and forget everything you learned. Right? The point is slow down, unplug, recognize that we have patterns and rhythms of life we need to not just accomplish. Now, this is much more difficult in a community like ours where maybe you don't have a regular schedule at all. Probably most of us in this community don't. So then how are we going to implement the principles of Sabbath? How are we going to slow down and put focus on God? Well, that's, that's up to each one of you how you're going to accomplish that, I guess. But the point is that as you slow down, as you unplug from your work, from your accomplishing, from whatever it is that you're trying to do, is, is your focus moving from me to God? God, what can I do for you this week? How can I honor you with how I live, with who I interact with? with is there somebody that you want me to go and talk with or knock on their door and see how they're doing? Regular patterns of life. Command number five, honor your father and your mother. Now here's the shift. So the first four are all about our relationship with God. And now there's the, the scholars call this the hinge commandment. It now moves to our relationship with each other. Now, there's two things in this command, one that we talk about a lot and maybe one that we overlook a lot. First, children, you're to honor your parents. Now, we kind of already talked about that, right? Mother's Day. Mom knows best, right? Now, so does dad, just so the dads are real clear on that. Is children, as you grow up, recognize that your parents did the very best that they knew how to do and it was imperfect, and in fact, some of it might have been really not very good. But you're still called to honor them because they're called to care for you and raise you in a way that shows you what it means to be a man or a woman, what it means to bring honor to God and how to treat each other. And so, you know, me as a parent now, it's easy for me to be like, I don't do this, but just to be clear, uh, to look at Smong and be like, look, this command, you have to honor me, so do what I say. That's a very perverse use of that command. But to us as individuals go, am I respecting and honoring my parents? And that doesn't just mean for the 18 or 17 or whatever it is years that we live at home. That's moving forward with that. And here comes the more difficult one now, and this is the implication that I think we don't do, and it's the implication given to them. As the generation gets older, is that you children, as they honored you and raised you and, and dedicated their lives to you, now you honor them and take care of them. Now here's a real hard one in our culture, isn't it? Because it's way easier often to go, man, I'm going I'm I'm to put you in a retirement home and I'll come visit you once every six months. And again, I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody or make accusations of any kind. What I'm trying to say is I think God's calling us to something different than that. I think God's calling us to care for those who have cared for us. Why? Because God has first cared for us. What does that look like? Well, that's different for everyone. And every culture does this in different ways. And not one culture does it completely right and, and not our culture is completely wrong trying to get at here is in our own hearts do we care for our parents you know every four weeks or so I get the opportunity to go to St. Martha's place and 
and, and do the chapel service for them there. And uh, there's all kinds of things that kind of stand out when, when you go and spend the, the kind of half hour, 40 minutes with the folks there. But one of the things is just the reality of how painful it is to watch people suffer, especially those that you love. But friends, if, you're, if your parents are suffering and they're hurting, go and suffer with them as much as you can. Be there to help them the way that they were to help you. I think that's the message God's trying to get across to us. Okay, now it's going to get real a lot shorter. Number six, don't murder. In fact, in the Hebrew, it literally is two words. Never murder. Life has value. All life has value because God has created humanity in his image. Every man, woman, and child that has been created has been created in God's image. And who are you to determine their value? Who are you to determine whether they should live or die? God alone has that right. And this is where it gets very complex, and this is another sermon for another time, and I'd be happy to have this conversation kind of further to this. But it's that reminder, we read through, well, the Egyptians all died. God drowned them in the Red Sea, so, so isn't he going against his own commandment? Well, he's, he's trying to say, you, human, do not get to determine this. You do not get to determine the value of another person's life. God alone has that right, and that's a hard thing to wrestle with, and, and I understand if that causes difficulty in your own heart. But that's a conversation that we certainly can have and we can move forward on. All we're trying to get to the point here is that you don't get to take someone else's life for any reason. That's not for you to decide. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Actually, I should say this. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we studied last year, both in Command 6 and Command 7, he uses those as examples. But the point that Jesus makes about the do not murder is that it's not about the actual physical act of taking someone's life, but it's about what? Your heart. If you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, Jesus says you're already guilty. Right? So it, it, God's trying to help us to un- understand that all, like I said, all life has value, and that it's not just about, you know, man, I can religiously obey these ten things, but I really hate everyone that I meet. And God goes, that's, you've missed everything. That's not the point. The point is, do you value every person that you meet? Do you see that God has created them and that God loves them and wants to be in a relationship with them? Is that how you see them? Seven is the same way. Do not commit adultery. Again, not, not only saying don't sleep with someone else's spouse. In Matthew 5, Jesus again says, you know what? If you look upon another person's spouse with a lustful intent in your heart, then you're guilty. Because again, this is about your heart and about how we treat each other. Again, God gets to determine these boundaries and sexuality is one of those things. We try to redefine these things in so many ways and especially in our culture now. We want to redefine things. And again, this is another sermon for another time. But sex has boundaries to it too. But sex is one of God's greatest gifts given to man. As long as we follow in the boundaries that he has created for us to live in. Command number eight, don't steal. Anything that does not belong to you doesn't belong to you, right? Now, how many of you 
whether you remember this or whether you've just been informed that you did this, how many of you, when you were a little kid, maybe stole something from the grocery store? No? Just me? Okay. Uh, thank you, Travis. Me and you, Travis. Okay. Sorry, I shouldn't name him. Some unnamed person. Uh, you know, you're a little kid and you're, you're getting pushed in the, in the, I almost said trolley. You know, you live in a multicultural place. When? Uh, the cart, the shopping cart, and you reach over and you grab the little chocolate bar, the stick of gum, and mom or dad that's pushing you, they don't see it because they're unloading their groceries, and all of a sudden you're in the car and they see this thing in your hand and you're like, oh, what happened here? Now, who pays for that? Mom and dad, right? Now, hopefully they teach you that, you know, like stuff, all stuff isn't yours. And just because I like hand some, some paper or a plastic card uh, to the person getting my grocery, like, like I'm purchasing something and you have that whole big conversation, right, of, of possession and ownership. And what does that look like? And again, in today's world, that's a whole different and confusing thing. We'll get into that in a few weeks as well. But the point being here is that not everything belongs to us. Some things belongs to other people, and, and I should not have those things. I should let those people have what belongs to them. Number nine, don't lie. Integrity is important. How we speak is important. How we represent ourselves is important, but more importantly is how we represent God. See, lying, and again, this is where we go, okay, but is it okay to tell that really little white lie to your four-year-old who doesn't really understand? It's like we're, we're way overcomplicating what God's trying to say here. Is if we're lying to somebody another so that we can have an advantage, so that we can gain at their expense, then that's wrong because you're not treating them with honor and integrity. Now, maybe you as a parent know better, well, let me say it differently. You as a parent know better than your four-year-old and you might have to say things to them in a way that they understand that sometimes you're like, oh man, that was maybe not the most truthful thing that I could have done. So then go and clarify that with them later. Have conversation further to that with them and explain what you can to them. But you're never going to be able to explain to a four-year-old all the intricacies of life that you need to. Sometimes, and I hate admitting this, but mom and dad were right when they said, can you just trust me about this one? God's saying the same thing. Don't take someone else's dignity by lying to them at, your, at their expense so that you gain something. Number 10, don't covet. So this ties into stealing again. But if someone else has something and it's not yours and so you desire something, well, that's wrong. So, so why the need to make the clarification of stealing and coveting? Well, here's the context. This command is to remind the people not to want what the other nations have, which ultimately they fail because God knows what his people need. One of the greatest examples of that is the kingship in the Old Testament, where the other people look at the other nations, or the Israel people look at the other nations and go, man, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And God says, it was not meant to be that I was supposed to be your king. You're not to follow after them. You're not to want what those other nations have because what they have might seem good to you now, but later you will be able to look back on it and see that, oh, that wasn't good at all. And again, we've all seen this in our life where we've looked back on something and go, thank the Lord that I didn't get what I prayed for there or what I wanted or what I thought was so important. Do we trust God? Do we believe that what he calls us to, what he knows is right, is good. Will we trust him? 
So why are the Ten Commandments given? Now here I'm going to close. Why are the Ten Commandments given to us? Again, they're not given to us, so if you can follow these, you can go to heaven. The Ten Commandments are given to us just like it is back to them to go, here's how to honor the holy creator of all things. Here's how to represent his name well. Oh, and by the way, he has created many, many, many other people, and some of them are very different than you. Some of them think different. Some of them look different. But you were to give them honor and respect because they're children of God as well. He has created them and loves them. And so don't look at the Ten Commandments as some rule list that they were to follow so that they could go to heaven. The Ten Commandments were given to them so that they would see and understand who God is in part, and they would be able to display that. That's why there's many, many other laws that we're going to look at in the coming days, some of which really culturally are hard for us to grasp and understand. But all of them were about their vertical relationship with God and then their horizontal relationship with everyone else so that the other nations would see that and go, I need to serve this God because he alone is just and right and true. And so you can argue and you can say, do the Ten Commandments apply to me? Only, that only depends on how you view the Ten Commandments. If you view the Ten Commandments as a way to bring honor to God and honor to each other, which is the way that they're meant to do, then yes, absolutely you should follow them. Not as a means to gain salvation. Your salvation was bought and paid for with Jesus' blood. But we should obey these moral laws of God because they represent, or they represent to the world what we think of who God is. Now we're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks. We're going to look at some obscure laws, some ones that don't make any sense to us, and some of them that maybe seem very countercultural that we have to really wrestle with. But all of these things, as they get further and further, and, and we can kind of cherry-pick these 10, but there's over 600 in the Old Testament that were given to the people. And it was never meant, if, if God meant, hey, if you follow all 600-plus of these, then you're good, then we've missed the boat. Don't forget also that all of the commands that were given of God to his people are not even written for us. The Bible says many times that here are some of those things that God spoke to his people. Who is God? Well, God's given us laws and commands so that we might understand his character. How are we to treat humanity? Well, God's given us laws and commands so that we would do that as well. Of course, here's the problem is we don't follow these things very well at all. We elevate self. We take things that we don't have from other people that do. We try and take dignity from others at the expense of them so that we can feel better about ourselves. All those kinds of things, and none of them have to do with following the holy God. So when you read commands like this, don't look at them and go, man, I have to do this so that I can go to heaven. Read them and go, here's what God is writing to show me who he is and how we ought to treat one another. Because no matter who it is in the world, no matter how difficult they are to talk to, no matter how different your opinions are about anything, is the simple truth is this, is God has created them and loves them desperately. He doesn't love them less than you because you live a certain way. He's called all of us to live a certain way. 
just because they're living in disobedience, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love them and wants them. And so we are called into that. We are called to be people who live with integrity, with respect, with honor, and that we give other people dignity because God is the one who has rescued us. So let's remember that. Let's pray. God, as we as we move into some of these other more obscure laws in the coming weeks, or, or maybe seemingly obscure to us anyway, may we try to see them in the context in which they're written so that we might understand who you are and how you have called us to treat one another. God, you have given us your word that we might understand how to follow you and what is right and what is wrong. But thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your patience as we continually get that wrong. God, help us to not be people who cast judgment on those who live different lives. Help us to try and show them that God's got an even better way for them. Not because we think they're wrong, not because we think what they're doing is bad, but because we're simply trying to honor you in the way in which we honor you should bring honor to one another. So help us to be bold about what is true and right, but help us to be incredibly gracious and kind in the midst of that. When we read these Old Testament laws, help us to not just flush them away as, as meaningless or unimportant or irrelevant to us, but help us to see them for the way in which you meant them to be seen. God, may we bring you honor, first of all, by how we live and act. And may we bring honor and, and grace and mercy to those that we interact with. May we be people who love you and who love others. Go with us today. Thank you for all that you're doing, whether we understand it or not. Amen.